As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. The C.S. Lewis Podcast with Alistair McGrath. Hello and welcome to the show that brings you the thought and theology of C.S. Lewis. I'm Justin Briley and this summer we're taking a little break from our regular series with Alistair to bring you some bonus content from other thinkers. The Case for Aslan, Evidence for Jesus in the Land of Narnia examines how Lewis employed Christian apologetics throughout the fantasy writing of Narnia. And author David Marshall will be talking to me today about how in the silver chair... Puddleglum proves himself to be a wise, if gloomy, thinker. Uh, There's a link to the book from today's show. If you want more from the podcast and to register there for bonus content, uh, you can find a free ebook and all our regular updates by getting hold of our newsletter at our website, premierunbelievable.com. Also links from today's show to our upcoming webinar, Tuesday the 13th of September, Falling from Grace, addressing leadership, abuse and power with a special panel including Amy Or Ewing, Mike Cosper, Rachel Den Hollander and Diane Langberg. You can attend free from anywhere in the world online. Just register in advance at unbelievable.live. Right now, here's part one of my conversation with David Marshall. Hello, welcome along to today's show. And in the first of a few episodes, I'm joined today on the podcast by David Marshall, who's author of a new book, The Case for Aslan, Evidence for Jesus in the Land of Narnia. It's just been released. And uh, it's it's in a way, it's an apologetics book, but it's based on Narnia. It brings to the surface lots of the ways in which Lewis made the case for faith, but often perhaps a mist in the stories of Narnia. Uh, I've had real fun reading it. And David is evidently someone who knows not just Narnia, but C.S. Lewis through and through. So David, welcome along to the show. Thank you. It's a privilege to be here. It's, it's great to have you. Um, when did your journey with Lewis and Narnia start yourself, David? Well, I, I suppose I could date it to a uh, glacial valley in Alaska called Mendenhall Valley. Um, mm-hmm. After church, one day, our family went to some friend's house and my parents were talking with our friends upstairs and I got bored with the adult conversation. So I went downstairs and started rummaging through the books in the, in the den, in the father's den. And I came across some C.S. Lewis books. That was when I was in eighth grade. Um, and I've been reading C.S. Lewis ever since. And he's mm-hmm. a lot of the books in the background here. They were recommended to me by C.S. Lewis himself. So he's furnished the. Uh, <laughs> my I, mind. I, assume, uh, I assume by that you don't mean you met him and he recommended them, but through his books, they've been recommended to you. There's there's no better way to. Uh, sort to figure out what books you're going to read, then then read C.S. Lewis's letters, and <laughs> note what he is was reading at different stages of his life, and 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 sort through some of those books and find ones you enjoy. It's yeah. a great way to great 
to introduce yourself to the world of letters. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, he was a prolific letter writer just as much as he was a, a writer of literature and fantasy and everything else. Um, and yeah, it's, it's well worth your time if, you're, if, you, if you like your Lewis. Um, okay, so, so uh, Narnia then sort of, I guess, was with you from that kind of age. Um, I, did you kind of immediately see the, the Christian allegories and so on going on? Um, not, not everyone who comes to Narnia necessarily sees that maybe until adult years, you know. Well, I was raised in a Christian family, so uh, it was pretty obvious, I suppose. Uh, also, I began reading Lewis's other works, and I was deeply influenced by, for example, Wagner Christianity. Uh, and I, I, I guess the what Aslan says about himself to, to Lucy is, uh, at one point, she she, she asks, uh, you know, he, he says something like, uh, "The older you get, the bigger I will become." Mm. And Lucy assumes, well, it's the other way around. Normally you go, you grow up mm. and you get older and things become smaller. Like I was taking mm. my son to a, a lake that we'd visited many years ago, a few days ago. And wow, this lake wasn't, isn't as big as I remember it as being. Yeah, yeah. But in the case of Aslan, Aslan keeps on getting larger as you grow older. And for me, that's been very much the case uh, mm. as I've gotten to know the world better. And I, first of all, going off to college mm. and secondly, going to Asia as mm. a as a missionary, which meant I was trying to figure out if God was really there. Mm-hmm. To be honest, I was supposed to be a missionary with for youth with a mission, but I was really wondering if this business about God could possibly be true. And so encountering uh, all the things you encounter in a place like Asia, you know, different religions, girls who've been forced into prostitution, um, people who disagreed with you from a materialist point of view, all the the atheism and the communism in in communist China, where I I spent a lot of time. Mm -hmm. uh, I found a lot of challenges to the Christian faith, but somehow what I found, what I met of Christ through Aslan as a young man also seemed to grow Mm -hmm. as I went along, Mm -hmm. as I started to encounter some of these challenges. Yeah. And, and over time, you know, you've used all those experiences to develop, uh, I think, a, a very cogent case for Christianity. You're, uh, you've published a number of books in defense of the historical Jesus, in defense of Christianity generally, responding to new atheism. You've been on my unbelievable show several times, uh, either talking about or debating with others. Uh, perhaps we'll, we'll come to that later, because John Loftus, you had a, quite a memorable debate with uh, several years ago. Um, but but in a way, has has alongside the apologetics, in a sense, has, Lewis, in a sense, Narnia was his imaginative side coming out. Um, in fact, I think some biographers, A.M. Wilson, I think, claims that really N- Lewis started writing fantasy literature um, in his later years because he kind of gave up on apologetics, which was, you know, his earlier endeavour. And and I think Wilson pinpoints this to him getting a bit of a drubbing uh, from Elizabeth Anscombe in a in a debate of the Socratic society. So what's your your view on that? Does does Lewis sort of retreat into fiction uh, after kind of, you know, getting disillusioned with apologetics? Well, there are people who have taken Wilson on uh, about, in regard to the, the particular facts of that argument. For example, one could point out, and many have, that after that debate, Lewis did, in fact, engage in a lot of apologetic arguments. His, what I regard as a wonderful essay, Fernseed and Elephants, was written about the same time as the Chronicles of Narnia, as a matter of fact. And from my point of view, having studied 
a lot of the skeptical challenges to the Gospels, uh, particularly the Jesus Seminar in the United States and people like Bart Ehrman and other people who have challenged the truth of the Gospels. I think that C.S. Lewis's Frenzy and Elephants still remains, it, 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 and it anticipated a lot of mm-hmm. the arguments that people would make later on and overthrew them. I think undermined and disproved a lot of the arguments against the Gospels that would come decades after he was born. Uh, mm. After he, after C.S. Lewis passed away, and after, so uh, sorry. What was the question again? Well, it just just yeah, whether he did actually, you know, give up on apologetics. It sounds like you're saying no, no, he didn't. Even though he obviously turned towards the imagination more with with Narnia and so on. I'm saying that on the historical level, you could say no, he didn't turn away from apologetics because he still wrote a lot of articles that were apologetic in nature. But of course, the thesis of this book is that Lewis also uh, included a lot of apologetics within his imaginative writing. And Mm. the arguments that he makes in those writings not only make sense uh, from his point of view and show that he still has rational reasons for believing in Christ and that he wants to make those arguments, but that those arguments have have grown like Aslan Mm. in the subsequent decades since Lewis passed away. That Mm. those arguments have become even stronger looked at from the perspective of later research and uh, uh, my own fields of research and also other areas of apologetics and, and checking, checking the, God, the truth of the Gospels from different perspectives. As for the particular claim that A.N. Wilson made, and he actually made it in regard to poor Puddleglum, the marsh wiggle. And for those of mm. I imagine that most of your listeners know who Puddleglum is. Well, well, whenever I think of Puddle Glum, I think of the BBC version of the Chronicles of Narnia. And I think it was played by Tom Baker. And it's sort of etched in my memory as, as a wonderful depiction of this, you know, this very glum uh, marsh I wiggle. I haven't yeah. had the pleasure, haven't had the pleasure of seeing that. <laughs> I have been compared to Puddle Glum at times. Oh, well, well, which I consider I say, an honor. I, I, I think that's a good a good comparison in as much as. Puddle Glum, you know, he may be obviously uh, on the more melancholy side, but but at the end of the day, he's the hero of the story, isn't he? He's the hero of the hour. And 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 I love the way you begin with Puddle Glum. In, uh, and tell me why you introduced the book with Puddle Glum's wager. And obviously there are overtones well, of Pascal's wager in that. Yes. Yeah, so let me let me let me give the Ian, Ian Wilson quote after he quotes Puddle Glum. Uh, he says, the wounded Christian, unable to think out his position, but determined in a moving and dogged way to be loyal to it. So Ann Wilson's point is that Puddle Glum represents blind faith. Mm. That Puddle Glum represents holding to your faith like a dog holding to, to its bone uh, just because you want to believe it. But actually, I don't think that's, a, that's what Puddle Glum is doing at all. In fact, um, I argue that, well, we have the word epistemology in English, which derives from the word pisteo in Greek, to believe, mm. beginning with the letter P. So I describe, I talk about four great philosophers whose names begin with the letter P, who all talked about why we believe things, why it's wise to believe some things and unwise to believe other things, mm-hmm. how in fact we can determine what is true and what is false. And that's the question that confronts Puddleglum and his comrades, really in the Prince and Jill and Eustace in the underworld, 
when they're trying to escape from Underworld and they encounter a witch. Uh, I, I don't know if I should tell the story or not. From people are familiar with the story. Maybe I may mention a little bit of it in, in a second. But let me talk about the. Well, maybe better set the scene a little bit with that. Mm. So, three comrades, Puddleglum and the two children from 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 uh, our world, have gone on search of the lost prince Rillian, and they they find him underneath Aslan. The, the noble lion gives them several signs that they must follow in order to find the prince. The, sec- the third of the signs is a, a sign. They will, they will meet a message that's on, in a ruined city that says that they will tell them what to do and they must follow those directions. Well, they come to the ruined city. They don't stop. But later on, they look out and they see this, the sign, the words under me inscribed mm-hmm. in huge letters across the, the ruined city of the giants. And so they realize that what they, what, what they must do is they must somehow get underneath this ruined city and that way they'll be able to find the, the, the lost prince. So they travel, they escape from the, another group of giants, they travel underneath the ruined city of the lost giants, and then they find themselves in Underworld, which is a dark, gloomy uh, continent underneath the ground, thousands of miles beneath the earth, the surface of the earth, which... The only inhabitants seem to be a, a very gloomy group of people called gnomes. The gnomes never laugh. They never talk. They always, they never smile. And they take them prisoner and they take them to a, a city of the gnomes. And it's a very quiet city because the gnomes never talk. When they arrive at the city, they meet the queen of this underworld, who is variously called the, 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 the green the Emerald Queen, or, or they have different names for her. She's also described as a witch, mm-hmm. and she's the one who has, uh, she is the one who has enchanted Prince Rillium, whom they meet in this ruined city. They set King Prince Rillium free, and just as they do so, the Queen arrives, and she's very angry. She takes some magic potion and she she tosses this these chemicals onto the fire near near in the in the palace where they're at and then she begins strumming a, an instrument like a mandolin according to uh lewis that's how that's what he describes the instrument he doesn't tell exactly what the instrument is now before they went on their quest the children went on their quest for the lost prince aslan had instructed them with these four signs that they must follow and then he said, when you go down into the world of Narnia, your mind will become foggy. The air is thicker down there. So you need, mm. must, need, must be very careful. This is the context in which the four travelers and the queen engage in a debate. And here you are in a children's novel. Mm. And in the children's novel, you're underneath the ground thousands of feet in some subterranean cavern. And you encounter a witch. So naturally, what you're going to do is debate epistemology, <laughs> have a philosophical debate. And the lead debater on the traveler side is the, the, puddle, the Marshwiggle Puddleglum. Um, now, I describe him. I say that he's similar. There's four, there are four philosophers whose names begin with the letter P who are, have all thought deeply about the question of why we should believe things or not believe things. First one is Plato. Mm-hmm. Plato also talked about a, a cave, 
Plato's cave is probably the most famous analogy that he made. Plato said that we're all trapped in a cave. Mm. And we don't know the way out of that cave. And he described us as slaves who only see images on the wall of the cave, which are not the original object themselves. We can, can we all see them? It's very dark. So the situation is very similar, actually, to C.S. Lewis's cave. The underworld is very similar to Plato's mm. cave. The second great thinker that I compare Paul Glum to is the French philosopher Blaise Pascal. Mm. Now, when you, you say the name Pascal, everybody immediately thinks of Pascal's wager. Mm. And what do we know about Pascal's wager? What do people think of when they think of Pascal's Well, that, that usually when I bump into people, they think it's a bit silly because what, what they, the way they cast it, at least, is you might as well believe in God just in case he does exist, in which case you'll get to heaven if he does, but you won't have lost anything if he doesn't. Um, and I can understand why people would think, well, that doesn't sound like a great argument for believing in God. It's a basically hedge my bets kind of argument. And can you even believe in something just on the basis that it might be true? Therefore, you're going to just you know, play it safe. So so that's the popular level understanding, if, if you will. Well, the scary thing about the popular level understanding of, of Pascal's wager is just how popular it actually is. <laughs> if you read Richard Dawkins, The God Delusion, you'll find that version of it there as well. Uh, uh -huh. If you read even some professional philosophers when they talk about Pascal's wager, even some Christian philosophers when they talk about Pascal's wager, that's what they'll have in mind. They'll say, well, okay, <laughs> we have to, Pascal was a gambler. He was a numbers mm -hmm. man. Okay, so we have to gamble on our lives. We only have one life. What are we going to do with our life? We, we, we can't say no. We can't say no to mm. this choice that we have to make. Mm. Are we going to mm. believe in God? Or are we not going to believe in God? Mm. Well, Mm. there's no evidence either way or the evidence is even or maybe the evidence is even against christianity according to richard dawkins that's his interpretation of pascal so we have to uh balance that against the rewards of believing or against the penalties of not believing and if we believe in god even if the evidence is against it maybe there's a hundred to one chance mm -hmm. still that one chance we mm -hmm. might end up wind up going to heaven. So the payoff is huge yeah, compared yeah. to the payoff of, of you know, mm -hmm. falsely believing, you know, even if you believe that there is no God and there, there is no, there in fact is no God. Well, nothing is life. Nothing is lost. You don't lose anything. Yeah. You don't lose anything. Mm -hmm. That's the popular mm -hmm. version of Pascal's mm -hmm. wager. But there seems to be a, mm -hmm. a, an iron law of exegesis. And that is everyone who talks about Pascal, let me put it this way. No one who talks about Pascal on the, on the internet has ever read him. <laughs> I know what you mean. I mean, when you go and read Pascal, he's a brilliant thinker. I mean, if, if all you know of Pascal is that popular level sort of, you know, pastiche of, of his, of his wager, then you're really missing out. Cause as you say, he's, he, there's, there's a treasure trove of stuff there, isn't there? Well, the th it's not only the treasure trust, particularly addressed to this particular challenge to the Pascal's mm. wager is the end of Pensee chapter after chapter talks about three particular kinds of evidence for the Christian faith. So he doesn't say that there's an even 50-50 uh, chance that Christianity is true. In fact, he's saying very much like Aslan said, he's warning us when you go down into this thick atmosphere of the world of Narnia, or maybe in the underworld when the witch tosses the chemicals onto the fire, your brain is going to become fogged. 
Now I know you guys have had mm-hmm. a have a, had a heat wave back in the UK. Yeah, we have. Yeah, we're, we're it's getting kind of hot here too, and I can I uh-huh. kind of understand that how the how the brain tends to fog under certain environmental circumstances. So Pascal's wager was actually not Pascal's wager. Pascal's wager was actually very challenging, similar in a way to Puddleglum's wager, mm. because Puddleglum basically says. Uh, maybe you're right about everything you've said, which maybe this world is all that there is. Maybe the cat, maybe the lion Aslan is actually just a, an amplification of your cat. And maybe mm-hmm. the sun is just like this lamp that's hanging. Uh, there's, uh, there can't possibly exist a sun. Mm-hmm. Maybe there is no sun. Maybe there is no Aslan. Maybe there is no, overworld no narnia maybe i've only imagined all of this but still it's quite interesting it's quite amazing that four children playing a game as you say have managed to create a world that licks your world hollow this is actually a rational argument in my opinion mm-hmm. well, first of all of course the four travelers had actually been to narnia and even if their memory of it wasn't very strong they did have certain memory and you also kind of have a multiplicity of testimony, too, which also comes into the Gospels pretty well. You have four different people who all say, yes, I've been to this place called Narnia. Maybe their memories are not very strong of it, but there is some, from a certain perspective, there is some evidence for that. Mm. But more importantly, from C.S. Lewis's point of view, he's saying, uh, this is, he, he, he compares this to the ontological argument, and he credits uh, Anselm and, uh, and Locke, I believe, for earlier versions of of the ontological argument. But his basic point is this. Um, This is really beyond this world that that you claim that we invented is beyond our capacity to invent. It's something that we would never have thought of. We never could have thought of. Uh, In another one of his books, he compares compares us to fish swimming in the ocean who don't Mm. know that there is water because we're swimming in the water. Well, from that point of view, from Lewis's point, and this, whether this is a good argument or not a good argument really isn't the mm. point at this point. The point is that Lewis is not just giving up. He's not just believing in blind faith, but he's making an argument that's based on our experience in the world. Mm. It's it's a great way to, to begin. And, and I, I love the way that you, you you kind of put that out there at the beginning, that, that whole idea of, you know, well, as as Puddlegum puts it, you know, perhaps that world doesn't exist, but if it uh, it's a better world, <laughs> a world that that these children have imagined turns out to be a better world than the world you're living in, and yes, and there's and almost he, yeah, go and ahead. he is very there is a, now an element of the popular conception of Pascal's wager there too, saying yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, this is a better investment, you know, yeah, 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 I'd rather yeah. die searching for this greater, this better world than live in your pit of a kingdom, which C.S. Lewis had experience of uh, in his own search for truth as a young man. Mm, mm, yeah. Well, we'll come back to this in, in the next episode of the show. Um, and of course, it's, it's Puddle Glum in the end who sort of saves the day by stamping out the fire with the witch's, you know, heady mixture that is sort of influencing the travellers and, um, you know, and, and helps the party to escape. and Not at all an enchanting to... smell. Burnt yeah. marshmallow. <laughs> Indeed. Um, we're going to talk about on the next episode, um, Susan, 
who is is you know a, a figure of controversy sometimes in the Narnia stories because of the way that Lewis sort of ends uh, the stories and and her particular story. So we're going to come to her on next week's show. Um, but can I recommend you go and get a copy of the case for Aslan by David Marshall? The link it's linked with today's show, and um, it's a really excellent guide not only to Lewis and to Narnia, but to the way in which you can dig out some really great apologetic gems from the works uh, of Lewis and, and Narnia in particular. So uh, he's he's my guest today on the show, David Marshall, and next week as well. Do come back again and I'll see you then. Well, thank you for being with me on the show today. We'll be continuing the conversation next week with David. We need to talk about Susan, authors such as Philip Pullman and J.K. Rowling weren't happy with the way Lewis handled her story at the end of the Narnia Chronicles. Well, David will be defending it. Thanks for being with us. and Do check out all the other good stuff on offer from PremierUnbelievable.com, including this show and, of course, our upcoming webinar in September. For now, God bless and see you next time.